You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, Bootstraps Bailey, and our two newest Commodores, Ethan Kane and Edward Kenway. If you'd like to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash piratehistorypodcast. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Cuyu seregio, eu serelegio. That's a Latin phrase. Translated into English, it means whose realm, his religion. Cuyu seregio, eu serelegio. It was a principle adopted in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg following a series of religious wars in the Holy Roman Empire. The principle was something of a surrender for the Catholic forces and one of the first major victories for the Reformation. In effect, it legitimized Lutheranism in the Holy Roman Empire. You see, the empire was basically that confederation of smaller kingdoms, principalities, dukedoms, and city-states. Now, the emperor was Catholic, but many of those kings, princes, and dukes were Lutheran. Those lords asked why so many of their people should be forced to attend Catholic services, when many of them were actually Protestant. Those lords were wondering why so much of their people's money was going to the Pope there in Rome, rather than, well, to them. They had rebellions and wars and uprisings, all until the Treaty of Augsburg declared, Cuius Regio, Eius Religio, whose realm his religion. This gave the local lords power to dictate the religion of their people. Now, mostly, that worked out for the best. It ignored Calvinists and Anabaptists and was far from a perfect system, but it allowed most people in the empire to practice the religion of their choice. The following 125 years or so saw more than a few more religious wars all across Europe, And there were more than a few other Latin phrases thrown around and peace accords established that either built upon or superseded that Treaty of Augsburg. That treaty was really insufficient to deal with the religious and political environment in Europe. There were too many faiths and too many sects cropping up all over. They needed a more comprehensive form of religious tolerance. So things went back and forth for a while, but the end result was usually okay fine. I'll stop cutting off your religious leaders' heads and let you go to your own church. Happy now? Everyone lived in this tense but semi-peaceful cohabitation with each other. By about 1680, things had, for the time being at least, mostly settled down. 
That old phrase, cuius eregio, eius religio, had become somewhat quaint, something of an old-fashioned idea. But what happens when a monarch turns that old principle on its head? By 1680, Louis XIV of France was nearing the height of his power. The king of England was getting old and licked at his boots anyway. The king of Spain, well, he was an invalid, and King Louis was married to his sister, so Spain wasn't a problem. The Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire and in Spain, well, they weren't much of a concern these days. They were weak. Plus, Louis's wife herself was a Habsburg. Louis was feeling confident after that Dutch war and began to plot his next move. With Spain and the Habsburgs in such a sorry state, and with England and the Netherlands in the hands of Protestant rulers, well, it seemed to fall to Louis to carry the flag for European Catholicism. And he turned to that old Latin phrase, cuius eregio, eius religio, whose realm, his religion. Well, in Louis's eyes, France was his realm, so why should he abide these Huguenot Calvinists and Protestants in his lands? So he chose to do something about it. King Louis's plan was twofold. First, he systematically revoked the rights of French Protestants. They couldn't hold office. They were taxed heavily. It was played off as being the base tax level, but then every Catholic in the country was given a tax subsidy for their contributions to the church. Then Louis restrained the Protestant rights to assembly. He restrained where they could practice their faiths. They couldn't practice outdoors and not on certain days. And then Protestants weren't even allowed to move. They could leave the country if they chose to, but they couldn't move to another town within France. Now, you might be thinking something along the lines of, well, wasn't that all very illegal in France? Yes. Yes, it was. The Edict of Nantes had protected French religious liberty for almost a century now. But who out there was going to question the Sun King? Not to mention Louis would officially revoke the Edict of Nantes before too long. Now, you might also have noticed that nearly all of these actions Louis took to persecute the Huguenots is directly addressed in our United States Bill of Rights, in that very First Amendment even, and that's not an accident. The Founders knew these tactics of absolute monarchs, and they saw to it that future Americans would be protected from these abuses of power. Religion, speech, and assembly are all freedoms that Louis was taking away, and all of them are protected by that First Amendment umbrella. But then Louis did something else, something that the founders of the U.S. thought was important enough to give its very own amendment, an amendment that, back in civics class, perplexed me. The Third Amendment. Quote, no soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. End quote. I always thought that was a strange one. When would soldiers be living with you? They have bases and stuff, right? But then come the dragoons. Dragoons were, at least at first, a sort of a mounted infantry. They traveled on horseback to move quickly, but then they dismounted before they fought. They made up the bulk of Louis XIV's French army, and after the war, he knew exactly what to do with them. He called it the Dragonades. Louis declared that the Dragoons would reside in the homes of French Protestants. Those Protestants were responsible for the housing and feeding of those soldiers. It was a tremendous financial burden. But that's the least of it. 
Think about that situation. You are a middle-class Huguenot craftsman, and you're forced to house and feed these Catholic soldiers. Soldiers that aren't at war. They don't have anything to do. But they do have orders. Orders to terrorize you and your family. They were instructed to harass and intimidate and brutalize their hosts. Try to tell them where to sleep? Well, they might take your bed and leave you to sleep outside. If your wife cooks a meal that doesn't please them, well, they might beat her. If your son talks back to them in a fit of ill-advised teenage angst, they might take a finger. And what do you imagine happens when three or four bored, armed soldiers finishes off the last of your wine and turns their eyes to your wife and daughters? Everything they were doing was illegal, of course. It wasn't officially sanctioned by the crown, but who were you going to complain to? The lords of France were all quickly adopting Catholicism, and to quote R. R. Palmer, quote, bending all else to his will, Louis XIV resented the presence of heretics among his subjects, end quote. It was a concentrated effort to get rid of Protestantism. Louis would claim that he got rid of all but 500 Huguenots in France, which was a vast exaggeration, but he did minimize their numbers. I mean, if you didn't want to deal with higher taxes, brutality from soldiers, and having your rights limited, well, all you had to do was convert. And many French Protestants did so. Those that didn't convert usually chose to flee the country, though. They fled to England and the Netherlands and to the tolerant German territories. But those with the means to do so often chose to flee to the Americas. England might be best for a candler or a grocer with a family to consider, but if you were a young man or woman who could afford a trip across the ocean, you might just be able to make your fortune in the New World. That was the case for one Captain Pierre Le Pain, who sailed from France in 1681 and arrived at the English colony of Jamaica in January 1682. Unfortunately, he isn't the pirate in question today. As much as I would love to talk about notorious French pirate Capitaine Le Pain, Le Pain was just a merchant. He arrived at Port Royal on board a 30-gun Royal French frigate, turned to commercial purposes after the war. His intent was to stop there in Port Royal and trade, but he found Jamaica so welcoming to he and his Huguenot brethren that he decided to make it a home. He chose to remain there in Port Royal and send the ship back to Europe with a cargo of rich American goods. He had plans for sugar and rum and dyes and spices. That would earn him plenty to buy a nice home and set up shop there in Jamaica. But he wanted one other commodity. Logwood was immensely valuable back in France. The court of Louis XIV ate it up, and his new Jamaican friends knew just where his ship could pick some up. So he sent his ship off, destined for the Gulf of Honduras at the base of the Yucatan Peninsula, and then it would head on to France. But his ship never made it. She was intercepted off the coast of Central America by a fleet of haggard sloops and converted canoes that were crewed by 120, quote, Desperate Rogues. This is episode 51, Desperate Rogues. For the last several months, in fact, for the bulk of 2017, we've been covering a large group of pirates in the West Indies and traveling into the Southern Ocean. There have been a lot of names to take in and a lot of places they've been covering about a five-year period. So for our end-of-the-year episode, I'd like to catch up with all of them, to see where all of the major players are, where their pieces are on the board. 
but we're going to do so through the lens of one pirate crew. That was the crew that took that French frigate off the coast of Central America. That crew, well, they were mostly small-timers. They were nothing more than a ragtag bunch of displaced logwood cutters and out-of-work privateers who were trawling the main for a decent prize. Now, mostly they were French, but there was the usual mix of English and Dutch and mosquito guides, escaped slaves, and biracial Spanish former Navy men. And probably all of these pirates weren't in any real tangible way a fleet. They were just a group of scalawags from one of the camps on the Caribbean coast of Central America or another. At least there's no mention of them in the records until they sailed out and took that 30-gun French naval frigate. You see, that ship still belonged to the French government. That's the sort of thing that gets noticed when it goes missing. That's the sort of ship that the French might have something to say about it. I mean, they'd want that back. And its last known port of call was Port Royal, which made it the problem of the English governor. Beyond being a major problem for the governor and a hassle for the French, that ship was the sort of prize that can turn 120 disjointed, drunken, broke, homeless maritime nomads into a real first-rate pirate crew. With a ship like that, well-armed and fast, they could take on any prize and probably win. It could take them from little better than beggars to the sorts of men that bring cheers when they sail into port, the sort that make merchants and prostitutes and rummongers smile with pleasure. But before all that, they needed a captain and a code. Now the code was likely the typical sort of pirate code that they signed in the buccaneer era. The ship was a prize, so no owner got any extra shares, but there were shares for captain and quartermaster and carpenters and surgeons, if they had any surgeons, and any man who got injured on the job. Then they voted in a pirate who was, until now, totally unheard of. A man named Jean Hamlin. There's nothing on him in the historical record until he was voted captain of this frigate. No record of naval service or marriage or birth. We know he was French, but we don't know that he was necessarily born in France. He might have been one of those young, ambitious young men who came to the New World in the wake of Huguenot persecution, or he may have been an anonymous son of someone in the West Indies. But those pirates chose to name their ship after electing Hamlin, perhaps after the new captain himself. They named it Trompus, or in English, the Trickster. For the next few months, they went on a rampage, taking ship after ship after ship. Mostly, they were taking high-profile merchant ships. Now, nothing tremendously valuable, usually, but enough that the Port Royal merchants started gnashing their teeth and demanding that the governor do something. And the governor would, but right now seems like a good time to set the stage for exactly where we are in our overall story to catch up with a lot of the pirates that we've been covering these last few months. See, almost all of them are actually active right here in 1682, so I'd like to recap exactly where they are. Bartholomew Sharp and Basil Ringrose, remember them? Well, since we left them, they had stuck around in the Pacific for almost a year. In November 1681, they rounded Cape Horn and then sailed up the eastern coast of South America, Right when Captain Jean Hamlin was taking the trickster, Sharp and Ringrose were in the Danish Virgin Islands, selling off their goods. In the months that followed, while Hamlin was taking lots of ships and cranking up the heat, 
The crew, under Sharp, disbanded, and Sharp and Ringrose left the West Indies and headed for England. And then we've got William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, John Cook, and Edward Davis, that last group of pirates to abandon Sharp in the Pacific. Right when the trickster was taken, they were traveling from St. Kitts to Puerto Rico, along with the other captains, Captain Wright, Captain Yonke, Captain Willems, and Captain Archambaud. In July, right when Hamlin was busy giving pirates a really bad name across the island world, that group of pirates disbanded and fled into the wind. If you'll remember, Wright left the fleet and then Archambaud betrayed the English pirates. Well, Wright and Willems went to Port Royal. Archambaud and Yonke stayed there in Petit Guave. William Dampier and a few others fled to Virginia while Wafer went to England. And then Cook and Davis went to somewhere quiet, probably full of rum and far from the law. And then we've got the pirates we talked about last time. At almost the exact same time that Hamlin was taking the trickster, Captain Lorjo de Graff was taking La Tigre from the Armada de Barlavento and subsequently taking La Francesca, that Spanish payroll ship. And then again, at almost that exact same time, Capitan Michel de Gramont was attempting a failed blockade on Cuba. And then, in those following few whirlwind months when Hamlin was busy taking English prizes, Nicholas von Horn was arrested in retribution for de Graff's piracies. This was one of those moments in history. The summer of 1682 was one of those times when everything came together. It all seemed to be happening at the same time. The seas were full of pirates. Now, none of that activity was on the level of Morgan's greatest raids, but taken together it was creating real problems in the West Indies. The merchants were grumbling and losing confidence in their colonial governments. Those governments were prosecuting what amounted to a de facto war, largely because of the pirate problem. And those great powers back in Europe were reading those reports and beginning to snarl at one another. It broke down something like this. Well, basically the French were behind it all. They were clandestinely supporting piracy in much the same way that Governor Modiford had supported Morgan back in the 1660s. You'll notice that our English pirates, Ringrose, Sharp, Dampier, Cook, Wright, they all seemed to have disappeared, and they really did. They fled the West Indies. Some of them went north, some of them went back to Europe, some of them went to hidden coves somewhere in the islands, but the pirates who were truly active were mostly French or Dutch pirates operating under French commissions. But then, France was also reassembling that great French naval armada. See, the Spanish had the Armada de Barlavento sailing out of Cartagena, but that was only in response to the French fleet. Then the Spanish had flotas of coast guard ships out hunting pirates, but really patrolling their waters in case of a need for defense. Now, the English Navy out of Port Royal was, as usual, a pretty pitiful thing, but the governor there was taking steps to rectify that situation. However, Henry Morgan was no longer governor of Jamaica. A new governor had just arrived and shaken things up on the island. Now, the new governor was actually an old governor. Thomas Lynch was serving once again as governor of Jamaica and was proving as much a thorn in the side of Henry Morgan as ever. He had immediately cut Morgan's government stipend in half. He had stripped the council of all of Morgan's allies. Then Lynch promoted men who were loyal to himself in the militia and basically just removed Morgan from the seat of power. 
Now, Morgan was still lieutenant governor and colonel of the militia. He still had all his titles, but he never attended council meetings. He never reviewed the troops, and he never sat in judgment. But none of that really bothered him. He was a rich man, and he was starting to get older and not in the best health, so mostly he drank his days away and enjoyed his wealth. But Lynch was still vibrant, and he had a particular interest in quashing English piracy in the Caribbean. He had been given the authority to pardon former pirates and bring them into naval service. Now, not privateering, not out hunting for prizes, but enlisting their ships in the navy and going where they were told, when they were told, and doing what they were told. Lynch had a lot more success recruiting pirates than Morgan had, though. A number of them sailed for Port Royal and took the governor up on his offer. It was a particularly good option when foreign authorities were after you, and a lot of pirates saw that. The most notable pirate to do so was John Coxon. If you'll remember, after Coxon left the fleet at Panama and crossed the Isthmus, he sailed north and stopped in 1680 at Jamaica. Then, Governor Carlyle chased him off as he was leaving the island. Now, Coxon was a pirate, but he may have been there seeking pardon. Perhaps he'd heard that Carlyle was leaving the island and was waiting to approach Morgan, or perhaps he just thought it a good time to try and reestablish himself as a legitimate privateer. And, if you'll remember my theory that John Coxon may have actually been under orders to scout the Kuna region, well... It's entirely possible that those orders came directly from Morgan, and he was going there to, well, report. Regardless, though, he received a less than warm welcome there at Jamaica, and he left those English waters. But he turned up next in the Bahamas, at New Providence Island. The only settlement of any note at all on the island was Charlestown, and it was only about ten years old. It was founded in 1670. It was still a very small town. It had maybe 1,000 inhabitants. The estimates claim about 400 men who were old enough to bear arms, about 200 women, 200 children, and 200 slaves. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, 
every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. The governor was a man named Robert Clark there on New Providence, and he was known to freely give out privateering commissions, even after the English barred him from doing so. He argued to the Lords of Trade, as had many Jamaican governors, that without a proper naval force, privateers were the only reliable option for defense. But those who turned up looking for commissions at New Providence Island were the meanest sort of pirates. They were really just scavengers. They were men who would lay traps for Spanish shipping in the maze of shifting sandbars surrounding New Providence Island, and then they'd go to pick the bones of those wrecked ships clean. Occasionally, if any survivors were present at the wreck, the English pirates would just cut their throats and dump them in the ocean. But John Coxon was once the most famous pirate in the Caribbean. However, he turned up there on New Providence looking for a commission. Seems his fortunes had fallen a bit. But he was granted one by Governor Clark and went out hunting. He did catch a few small prizes, but he wound up off the coast of Florida in 1681. He raided what was, at the time, still a relatively small fort at San Augustine. He burned the houses there, he stole piles of plunder, and he carried off prisoners. After that little adventure in Florida, though, John Coxon found his way to the coast of Darien in April 1681 that was near the Kuna camp, and he was in the company of Wright and Willems and all that lot. That was when William Dampier and his companions arrived out of the jungle and they sailed off north. Then that fleet was dispersed by the Spanish, and then John Coxon decided to once again try his luck in Port Royal. This time, he received a much warmer welcome. Thomas Lynch was the governor now, and he received Coxon as an old compatriot and decided to hear his tale. Coxon never wanted to be a pirate, he said, and honestly, that might have been true. He was a privateer. He did hold a legitimate position for most of the time that he was out on the ocean, except for that raid on Panama. He'd been chased off by the former governor, Carlyle, but then he'd gone immediately to seek out a commission in another English territory. Everything he did, except for that raid on Panama, which you'll notice he didn't really take part in, well, he did that under official sanction. Some of it may have pushed the boundaries of legality, but he tried his best to stay within them. Then he showed Governor Lynch his letter of mark, that one given him by Governor Clark, Lynch was astounded by this. He may have been a little bit impressed that Coxon refused to go out hunting without a commission, but Lynch was horrified. He had special dispensation from the Crown to recruit pirates into the Navy, but privateering was absolutely not permitted these days, nowhere in the English Empire. So Governor Lynch wrote to Governor Clark on New Providence Island. He admonished him. He threatened to tell the Lords of Trade exactly what he was up to. Robert Clark wrote back. He claimed that Coxon had stolen that commission, and that he was never given leave to sail for New Providence. He wrote that, quote, Captain John Coxon, being denied a commission to take St. Augustine, Florida, went hence in contempt of any orders and contrary to law and custom. 
carrying away some persons that are indebted to the inhabitants. All that he did in landing and plundering on Spanish territory was done by his own power. I thought it fit to inform you of this, since I hear he is now at Jamaica. End quote. So, someone is lying here. Did John Coxon get his commission officially, or did he steal it? Either the governor of Charlestown on Nassau, or John Coxon was a liar. Now, one of them was a pirate. The other, though, was a host of pirates. Lynch chose in this matter to side with Coxon. See, John Coxon was a legitimate privateer, and he was a veteran. He was, at one time, a naval officer. Robert Clark, on the other hand, was just an old, disgraced Cromwellian. Then Lynch did write that letter to the Lords of Trade, but it, in the end, didn't matter very much. A few months later, a Spanish fleet would arrive in Charlestown under Captain Juan de Alcaron, on orders from the governor at St. Augustine, Fernandez de Cordoba. The Spanish fleet opened fire on the harbor and sunk most of the ships. Then they landed soldiers in Charlestown and burned the city to the ground. It was a one-sided affair. There was virtually no defense in place. Those 400 men who were of an age to bear arms were not necessarily trained to bear arms. Many of them would have been no more than farmers. There was a fort there, but it was abandoned almost immediately. Anybody who had the opportunity to do so ran. Now, a few ships did escape, but not nearly enough. The Spanish soldiers were set loose, and they defiled Charlestown in every way imaginable. Governor Clark was carried off and subjected to torture before mercifully being allowed to die. And it was rumored, though probably inaccurately, that he was killed on a spit over a burning fire. Now, all of that was in retaliation for the attack on St. Augustine, yes. But it was for a lot more. It was for at least a decade of ships lost there in the Bahamas, of crews murdered. It was for more than that, even. It was for decades of English atrocities in Spanish cities. There was a lot of rage built up in the Spanish, and they took it all out on Nassau. The Spanish were aware that New Providence was to blame for so much of that, but here, after the attack on St. Augustine, well, they had their proof. Now, a few scavengers would continue to make their home on the island for the next few years, but it wasn't until 15 years later that Charlestown would be reborn. This time, it would be named after the new English king, as Nassau, New Providence Island. In the meantime, though, Governor Lynch had made up his mind about Coxon. He did indeed want to bring him into the English fold, and he had a perfect job lined up for him. First, he sent him on something of a test run to go break up some of the logwood camps in the Bay of Campeche, but then he brought him back to Jamaica and told him to capture the pirate Jean Hamlin. Immediately after Jean Hamlin captured the trickster, back in early 1682, Lynch ordered a different privateer, this time an actual legitimate privateer named George Johnson to go intercept that pirate. Now, the governor wasn't really concerned with Hamlin, but the French naval frigate he'd captured, well, that was another story. George Johnson had orders to, quote, preserve the ship as the French king's property, end quote. What happened to the pirate here was inconsequential. 
He could be brought back for trial. He could be killed. Even if he escaped, he wasn't really a big deal. So Johnson chased after the trail that was left in Hamlin's wake. He happened then upon Hamlin's second prize. It was an English sloop out of Antigua that had been boarded, raided, and pillaged by Hamlin and his men. They did, however, have word of the pirate's next move. The captain of that English sloop told Johnson that Hamlin was headed towards the Mona Passage between Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. He said that he hoped to catch New Englanders and Irish ships on their way to the Leeward Islands. Dutifully and grateful to this English captain and his fortuitous news, George Johnson headed out to the Mona Passage on his hunt for the trickster. Here's the thing, though. Jean Hamlin wasn't headed out to the Mona Passage. He was on the other side of Hispaniola entirely, a few hundred leagues away. Oh, he'd allowed that English captain to overhear him talking about the Mona, but he never intended to go there. It appears that the trickster was well-named. For Captain Johnson, though, the trail would naturally go cold. He would eventually stumble across another pirate, though, Nicholas Van Horn. Van Horn was currently rotting away in a dungeon under Santo Domingo. Van Horn was on that list of pirates that Captain Johnson was to capture, if possible, but the Spanish were perfectly happy to let him rot, so they turned Johnson away. There were other privateers out hunting for Jean Hamlin, though, already. Captain Matthew Tennant of HMS Guernsey was searching around the well-known pirate haunt at Isla Aveche. He was the, well, the luckiest of the pirate hunters. He spotted a set of French sails in a hidden cove that were familiar to him. He'd seen them at Port Royal months ago. It was the trickster, and she was laying at anchor and had no idea that he was there. So Captain Tennant set a course to block the trickster from escaping that cove in which she was hidden, but the wind died before he was actually able to reach the trickster. By that time, Hamlin had noticed the English ship and was preparing to run, or, if need be, to repel her. But the wind left both ships idle. They waited each other out. They were searching for a breeze. Apparently, the English captain had no oars on board, so the two ships just kind of stared at each other, waiting for something to happen. Finally, a breeze did come, but it wasn't a pleasant breeze. Sudden gale-force winds came down, and a storm followed them almost immediately. Now Captain Tennant ordered his men to take the wind and intercept the trickster, but the French ships slipped out of the cove right under his nose and sailed off. Tennant gave chase, but he said that the trickster could sail three feet to hour one. So Hamlin was off again, looking for new prices, and the next one he caught was the greatest that he ever took. The Thomas and William was a slaver in the employ of the Royal African Company. She was out of Barbados and bound for Jamaica when she, quote, spied a ship standing towards us, which, coming up, ordered Captain North to strike, hoist out his boat, and come aboard, at the same time firing a volley of small shot and the great guns. North answered the fire, but was perplexed, some of the crew saying that this was an English frigate firing to make him strike his topsail yard. Some of the crew hauled down the colors, while others presently rehoisted them. End quote. That was an account of one of the crewmen on board the Thomas and William. What he's saying there is that a ship came up on them and 
ordered the captain to strike his colors and come over to their ship. This was the sort of thing that one might do to a foreign ship they didn't recognize, or maybe if they were out hunting for pirates. Were that the case, Captain North could show his license to trade with the Royal African Company and be about his way with no trouble. You see, Spanish Coast Guard ships would board or sink regular merchant ships with impunity, but attacking a Royal African slaver? Wars had been started for less, much less. If Spain attacked one of those vessels, well, they would likely find the Royal Navy, the private navy of the Royal African Company, and a decent bit of the East India Company knocking on their door. But then some among the crew of the English slaver noticed that the ship that was hailing them was flying English colors. But she wasn't crewed by Englishmen, she was crewed by French sailors. They were unsure who was aboard. Their colors were struck, then they were rehoisted. All the while, no one knew who that other ship was. So Captain North chose not to go over to that other vessel, but he did send his first mate over to see what all the fuss was about. As soon as that mate was aboard, that stranger ship opened fire. There wasn't much of a battle to talk about. The slaver attempted to return fire, but they were completely outgunned. The Thomas and William surrendered, their crew was put in chains, and the ship was looted. The captain, Jean Hamlin, announced himself and gloated over his English captives while his crew carried away about 65 pounds of gold, an unknown amount of silver, a bunch of slaves, and more than a few of the skilled seamen aboard. This was a serious matter, to say the least. If England would have sent their royal navy after a Spaniard who attacked one of these ships, what would they do if a pirate attacked one of them? Well, unfortunately, the pirate had proved wily. He had avoided all of the hunters sent after him so far. So Lynch knew that whatever defense he might mount wouldn't be up to the task of catching Hamlin. He needed someone who thought like a pirate. And here, standing before him, was John Coxon. Coxon was enlisted and given a commission, and then he was given orders. He was to take his crew out along with the crew of Captain Thomas Paine and find the Dutch privateer Jan Willems. Willems was rumored to be somewhere along the Mosquito Coast, and Lynch was prepared to offer him, quote, men, victuals, pardon, naturalization, and 200 pounds in money if he will go after La Trompousse, end quote. Those three, Coxon, Payne, and Williams, were then to reunite and hunt down Jean Hamlin. So Coxon sailed for the main. All the while, Jean Hamlin was busy taking English prizes. He took a sloop here, a merchantman there, but things were getting a little bit dangerous for him. So he set out for St. Thomas. The governor there, who historian David F. Marley styles, quote, the notorious Adolf Esmet, well, he received Hamlin's gifts of silk and satin and sent out an emissary carrying rum punch and a message. Hamlin was welcome in the Danish colony. He was welcome to stay there. He was welcome to trade. All that he required was that the governor get a cut. Meanwhile, back on the coast of the Maine, John Coxon had indeed found Jan Willems, but he found a lot more than that. Willems was there, but not alone. There was a gathering of pirates off the coast, a large one. There was Jan Willems, there was a French pirate called Francois Le Sage, there were several other smaller names. Remember Jacob Evertsen? 
Last time, Henry Morgan assured the English Secretary of State that he'd killed Jacob Evertson. Well, yeah, he was here at this gathering of pirates. Nicholas von Horn was there after his escape from that Spanish cell. He captained his ship, the Mary and Martha, which he'd renamed the St. Nicholas. Did he, I mean, did he name his ship after himself, Nicholas von Horn, on board the St. Nicholas? And apparently he sainted himself as well? That's bold. Now, nominally, von Horn was in charge of the expedition. If you'll remember, he was the man who had that commission from the governor of Petit But then, aboard the corvette Colbert was the French pirate Michel de Grammont, who was easily the most experienced and favored captain there. He was an actuality in charge of this little gathering. For now. When Coxon and Payne met with Willems, they learned that another pirate was coming. That little gathering was waiting on Lorho de Graff. Willems said that all of these pirates were planning something big. They were planning something really big. He didn't have time to go off hunting some two-bit French pirate with Coxon. I imagine Willems even offered John Coxon a place at the table. He was, in his own way, as famous and well-respected as de Graff. But John Coxon was apparently tired of the roving pirate life. He preferred a home. He wanted a place to lay his head, and he wanted that guaranteed bag of coin. So Coxon and Payne left that fleet behind. They set out in search of Jean Hamlin. I imagine that, with hindsight, John Coxon regretted not sailing with Willems and de Graff and all the rest. The voyage on which they were about to set sail would net them far more than the paltry 200 pounds silver John Coxon was promised. And what of Jean Hamlin? Well, John Coxon would be frustrated there as well. Hamlin had decided that things in the West Indies were getting a little too hot at the moment and chose to flee across the Atlantic to the coast of Africa. In this, he was ahead of his time. That barrage of high-profile attacks were a harbinger of something else. They were the opening moves in what would prove to be the last days of the buccaneering era. The raids that were coming up, well, they were comparable to the greatest raids of Henry Morgan. They would shake the world of the pirates to the core, and the response that the great powers mounted would be even worse. Most of the English had already fled the New World, but after what's about to happen, almost all of the rest will flee as well, and many of them will follow Jean Hamlin across the Atlantic. They'll flee to Africa, and then move on to Madagascar, and then on to the Indian Ocean and the Pirate Round. Next time, we'll talk about the upcoming raid, the raid that, although the pirates didn't know it, spelled the end of the buccaneering era. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. I'd also like to wish everyone a happy new year. I hope you had a happy holiday season, and I hope that 2018 treats you well. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon, and we've had a lot of new patrons sign up, and I appreciate every last one of you, or those of you who left us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. I couldn't do this without you. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. 
If you haven't checked them out yet, I definitely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight